Welcome to Leading Lights. You are about to hear a message from Lighthouse Church. Hello there. Merry Christmas. We're running up to Christmas, and I thought it would be great for us to look at the story of Mary and Joseph as they were moving towards Bethlehem to give birth to Jesus. Because as they were walking towards Bethlehem, we are walking towards Christmas. You know, we hear the stories of Christmas so often, and we see them in plays and in presentations all over the place that we can become numb to some of the amazing details of the story of Christmas. Today, I want to look at O Little Town of Bethlehem and look at the amazing facts around this town of Bethlehem and the story of this young couple moving to this tiny little town for a short period of time and the Son of God to be born in this town of Bethlehem. The American archaeologist W.F. Albright says that he estimates that the population of Bethlehem at the time when Jesus was born was only 300 people. It really was a little town of Bethlehem, a tiny little village in the hills close to Jerusalem, not very far, just about three miles from Jerusalem, um, but 80 miles from Nazareth, where Mary and Joseph were living. And we know the story that God had appeared to Mary first in the form of an angel, told her that she was going to bear the Son of God, the Messiah, and bring him into the world. And she was shocked, surprised, confused. But at the end of that conversation, she said, yes, be it unto me, according to your word. And then God appeared to Joseph because he was shocked that his engaged bride was pregnant, even though he hadn't slept with her. And this angel appeared and said, don't worry, God has done this. It's a miraculous, beautiful, special thing. You should marry her. And so Joseph was committed. He said, yes, I will marry you. And then something happened. And we read about it in Luke chapter 2. It says, and it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. Registered simply means a census to be taken. This... uh, Emperor Caesar Augustus, who was sitting in a lovely palace in Rome, many thousands of miles away, decided that everybody in the whole area of Rome, the whole empire of Rome, everybody should be registered and a census taken and their name written down. Why? So that he could tax everybody correctly. And he decided that this should happen. Verse 2, the census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So we know the name of the people involved so we can pinpoint the time, the date, and the place. Everything was historical. It really happened. Verse 3, so all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Basically, what he had said is go back to your ancestral home where your family is from. Verse 4, Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. So Joseph came from David's family line, even though he'd moved away to a different city, he had to come back to Bethlehem. And so he traveled up there to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child. So it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth 
her firstborn son. So she had other sons and other children afterwards, but her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes or torn up cloths. She basically didn't have any of the proper things to look after a baby. So she tore up some material and laid him in a manger, which is a feeding trough for an animal because there was no room for them in the inn. I think the fact that it says the inn probably means there was only one inn in this tiny little town of Bethlehem. So what I'd like to do is just tell you a little bit about Bethlehem and then we're going to see what this means for us and look at it with fresh eyes so that we can appreciate what God did on this first Christmas morning. Bethlehem is mentioned in the Bible at least 20 different times in 11 different books. And I'll just tell you a few of the times, Rachel. So there's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Jacob became Israel. He was renamed as Israel. Israel's wife was Rachel. Remember, he had two wives, Leah and Rachel. And Rachel was the one who gave birth to Joseph and Benjamin, his favorite sons. Now, Rachel died and was buried in Bethlehem, Genesis 35, 19. So we know that Bethlehem is the place where Jacob or Israel's wife, Rachel, is buried. Secondly, we know that the book of Ruth happened in Bethlehem. Do you remember there was a lady called Ruth? She was a Moabitess. She was from another tribe, another race, and she was brought into Israel because she married an Israelite man. She came back to Israel with her mother-in-law after her husband and all the men in the family had died, and they moved to Bethlehem. And that's where Ruth met Boaz, who eventually married her, and Ruth became the ancestor of King David. So we know that everything that happened in the book of Ruth happened in this tiny little town of Bethlehem. We also know that King David lived in Bethlehem. So do you remember the story of, of the prophet Samuel going to find the next king? And he goes to this tiny little town of Bethlehem and he uh, finds Jesse's household. And there are eight sons, seven of them are in the house. And he looks at all of them and none of them is the one who will be king. And he says, isn't there another? And they say, oh, there's that young one. He's out in the fields looking after the sheep. And that was David. And when they brought him in, Samuel said, this is the one. And he anointed him king of Israel. That happened in Bethlehem because David's home was in Bethlehem. He was looking after the sheep in Bethlehem. Bethlehem has always been a place of looking after sheep right from David's time all the way up to when Jesus was born. Do you remember there were shepherds in the field outside rearing sheep and looking after their sheep. And the reason, the main reason for the sheep rearing that happens in Bethlehem is because it's so close to Jerusalem, they need a lot of animals for sacrifice in the temple in Jerusalem. And so the sheep are reared and the little baby lambs are reared in Bethlehem and then transported to the temple to be sacrificed. And so the Lamb of God, Jesus, who fulfilled all the prophecies and all the foreshadowing stories of a lamb being sacrificed for the sins of the world. The lamb of God, Jesus, was born in Bethlehem in the same place where all the baby lambs are born for sacrifice in the temple. Amazing. And then the last story about Bethlehem. After David became king, he was fighting against the Philistines 
and he was outside Bethlehem and they were desperately thirsty and there was a well of water inside Bethlehem. He would have known it because he grew up in that area and the Philistines were protecting the whole city and David said, I'm thirsty. And his men loved him so much that they broke through the Philistine lines. They got some water from that well and they brought it back to David. And David was so amazed with their bravery and devotion and courage that he poured the water out and he said, thank you. I won't drink it because it's sacred and precious because you were so brave and risked so much to get it for me. So that's the background of this amazing place called Bethlehem. But then there's one very important fact, and that is that the book of Micah, many hundred years before Jesus, prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, and I'll tell you what those two words, Bethlehem and Ephratah, mean in a moment. But he says, But you, Bethlehem, Ephratah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, Yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. You know, it's so amazing when we see the prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus. Some experts say there are 300 prophecies about Jesus in the Old Testament that he fulfilled. Other experts say there are 400, some even say 500 prophecies or references to Jesus in the Old Testament. But the Old Testament is full of foreshadowings, uh, signs and words and messages pointing to a Messiah. This one here is one of the clearest. It says, but you, Bethlehem Ephrata, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, yet out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from of old, from everlasting. It's a clear prophecy. And we see from prophecy, it tells us something about the nature of God Almighty. God Almighty is sitting outside of time. He says, I see the end from the beginning, the beginning from the end. He can see the whole picture because he is outside of time. He calls himself the great I am, not I was, not I will be. He is always present and he can see all of history and all of time from his vantage point. And so he can say to Micah hundreds of years before Jesus, Bethlehem is the place. And he can prophesy it because he can see what's going to happen. And it gives us comfort. You know, no one else can see the end from the beginning. Even the devil and his demons can't see the big picture. They can guess. They're very intelligent, so they can, they can guess what's going to happen. But they cannot prophesy accurately. They cannot predict with certainty what's going to happen. But God can. And the amazing thing about these prophecies of Jesus, you know, experts and mathematicians have tried to work out how possible is it or likely is it that somebody like Jesus could fulfill all of these prophecies. And as I've said, there are hundreds of them, but there were some experts in a, in a, in a college. Peter Stoner and Robert Newman wrote a book called Science Speaks. And it was based on the science of probability and vouched for by the American Scientific Affiliation. And it set out the odds that any one man in all of history could fulfill only eight of the prophecies 
fulfilled by the life of Christ. So they just chose eight. They didn't take all 300. And they said, what is the chance or the probability or the likelihood of that happening? And they said, the probability is one in 10 to the power 17. So that's one chance in a number with 17 zeros after it. Just to illustrate that, if you took 10 to the 17 silver coins and you put them in the state of Texas in America, they would be two feet deep. And what are the chances of a blindfolded person picking the one marked coin out of all of those on their first try? That is the probability of Jesus fulfilling just eight of the prophecies. And so we know that he is the promised Messiah. So now I just want to talk about four reasons, actually five, for why Bethlehem was chosen. Obviously, uh, the first is that it was prophesied by God and he saw it in advance. But the second one is that Bethlehem, the name Bethlehem means house of bread, Bethlehem, house of bread, a place where bread and food is brought forth. And for the Israelites, the bread symbolized the manna in the desert, how God fed them every single day. And when Jesus came, he called himself the bread of life. He fed people with bread. They kept coming after him, looking for more bread. And he said, no, you really need me. I am the bread of life. Bread came out of Bethlehem, the food that we need. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And Jesus brought those words and himself. He said, my body will be broken like bread for you. The second thing is Ephrata. If you remember in that prophecy in Micah we read, it's called Bethlehem Ephrata. Ephrata means fruitful, abundant in fruit. And Jesus brings fruit. Do you remember he said to his disciples in John chapter 15, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you will be fruitful. Apart from me, you can do nothing. But abide in me and fruit will come out of your life. Fruit came out of Bethlehem. The third is that it's the household of David and God had promised again and again to David that one of his descendants would be the Messiah and would reign on the throne forever. And so it had to be in the same town where David was born and where he lived. The fourth reason is this water that David asked for. He asked his soldiers to go and get water from Bethlehem. Bethlehem is a source of water, the water of life. And Jesus spoke of this water of life several times in his life. In John chapter 7, he goes to this big feast and he stands up and it says in verse 37, on the last and greatest day of the feast, he stood up and cried out in a loud voice, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from his innermost being. And when he was speaking to the woman at the well who had such a broken family life, he said, if you knew who I was, you would ask me and I would give you living water, the water of life that satisfies and that you never need to be thirsty again afterwards. And that is what Jesus gives, that water, that living water, and it comes out of this place of Bethlehem. And then lastly, the little lambs being slaughtered in the temple came from Bethlehem and Jesus, the Lamb of God, was born in Bethlehem. But now I want to talk about the amazing circumstances that led to this happening. You know, you've got Caesar Augustus, the great Roman emperor. You know, for a couple of hundred years before this, 
Rome had existed as a power, but it was a republic, which means that no one person was above the law. Everybody was was subject to the laws of the land. And it was like a democracy, really, with, with a Senate. And then Caesar Augustus came along about 30 or 40 years before Jesus was born. He came along and through various battles and 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 successes, he became the emperor of Rome. And he is the first Roman emperor. It changed from being a republic to being an empire with a, a dictator at the head who called the shots. And it was an incredibly powerful reign. He reigned a huge amount of, of land and Rome was very successful. Uh, he did amazing things. And he makes a decree. He thinks he is the most powerful human being on the planet at the time. And he probably was. But he doesn't realize that as he's saying the words, I want a census taken. I want everybody to go back to their country and land where they came from. He was fulfilling God's prophecies from hundreds of years before. And all the signs that were pointing in the Old Testament towards Messiah, God was working the pieces together. Caesar Augustus thinks he is the most powerful, but he's not. He is a pawn in the hands of of almighty God and God uses even great powerful people and men and forces to achieve his ends. Isn't that absolutely amazing? The second thing is that the Romans were an oppressive government. They were an occupying force in Israel. The Israelites had been invaded and they were subjugated against their will to the Roman authorities. They would have said, oh, I wish these Romans would leave us alone. I wish we could rule ourselves. I wish we weren't governed by people who don't believe in our God. I wish we didn't have to follow all their rules. I wish we didn't have to fear that they would hurt us or punish us for just living our lives and serving our God. And they were overly taxing the Israelites and everybody else so that they had to pay huge amounts of money to the Roman government. It was not a good or godly government. And interestingly, all the way through the New Testament, in all those times where Paul and various others say, obey your governing authorities, they were talking about this Roman government who were not godly people and were not following God's ways. And yet, even though it's a non-godly government, and even though it's offensive to the people of God, God uses that government to achieve his ends. Isn't that amazing? Absolutely amazing. The second thing is just the juxtaposition of the king of the universe, Jesus Christ, who's been reigning in heaven. He was there at the beginning when the universe was created. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God. The word was God. And by him and through him, all things were created. That's Jesus. He's there at the beginning, creating the universe. And then God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit discuss together, how will we save humanity? And Jesus says, I will go and I will shrink myself down and become a human being, and I will live and die for them. This king of the universe becomes a tiny little seed that gets implanted in Mary's womb. He grows and gets born as a baby, a vulnerable, helpless baby, can't walk, can't talk, has to be fed, has to be cleaned, uh, has to be taught how to live. And it happens in circumstances that are risky 
and, and not full of pomp and wealth. He, he is born into a tiny little poor place. There is no room in the inn. The only inn in this tiny little village of Bethlehem that probably hardly anyone really even thought about. It's such a small place. And they go there. There's nowhere for them to stay. They have to stay in a, in a place where the animals are kept. Uh, there's no family around to help Mary and Joseph bring this baby into the world. Uh, they've had to have a long journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. They're wondering, oh, these oppressive Romans. Are we going to get there before the baby's born? Oh, what a pain this is. And this is how Jesus is brought into the world. No extra funds, no money, uh, no pomp and ceremony. There were only a few people who knew the significance of what was happening. The shepherds in the field had an angelic visit and they were told there's a sign. There's a baby who's been born in Bethlehem. And they went and they worshipped him. The wise men from the east who came and traveled following a star, they brought gold, incense and myrrh. They realized the significance. But it was a small number of people who realized and the majority of people. Certainly the 300 living in Bethlehem and the thousands or millions living in Israel did not realize what had happened. And then when Herod, the Jewish king, realized what had happened, he sent out soldiers to try and kill all the babies two years old and under because he realized at some time in the last two years, the Messiah might have been born. He's a threat to my kingdom. Let me try and kill him. And so Joseph and Mary were warned by an angel and they fled to Egypt out of fear of death. Now, does that sound like the arrival of a great conquering king? No, it doesn't. And the question that you and I have to ask and get the answer to, because it's very important for us, is why does God do it this way? And is he still doing things this way? And the answer is given to us in Zechariah 4 verse 10. It says, who dares despise the day of small things. Since the seven eyes of the Lord that range throughout the earth will rejoice when they see the chosen capstone in the hand of Zerubbabel. Who dares despise the day of small things? God loves to take the small things, the ignored things, the forgotten things, the weak things of this world, and he uses them to display his glory, his power, his love, his grace, his victory. He takes the smallest, most vulnerable thing, a baby, a human baby, born in difficult circumstances, without wealth and pomp, without protection, at at threat of death and damage. And he puts him in a tiny little town called Bethlehem, and he causes his glory to be revealed. And friend, there are a couple of very important encouragements that this gives you and me. Number one. God will use you, no matter how small or insignificant you think you are, no matter how small the thing is you have in your hand. Just like the little boy, when Jesus fed the 5,000, he brought his loaves and his fishes, five loaves and two fishes, not enough, but he gave them to Jesus and Jesus broke them and fed the multitude. God will use you and whatever you have and whatever your circumstances are. When Gideon was told he was a mighty man of valor, he says, my tribe is the least of Israel and my family is the least. And the angel said, God will use you. 
My friend, God loves to use the small, the weak, the insignificant because he gets the glory. You say, I don't have the education. I don't have the training. I don't have the experience. I failed in the past. I don't have money. Whatever it is, God says, I will use you. Just put your little five loaves and two fishes in my hands and let me break them and multiply them and use them for my glory. Isn't that amazing? And then the next thing is that God always wants to grow and increase what he's given you. And so we mustn't stop where we are. The little baby Jesus didn't stop. He continued to grow and fulfill God's plan and purpose. God is always moving. God is always working. Things are always growing in God's hands and being multiplied and achieving an end that God has planned. And God has a plan for you, my dear friend. A big plan for you. What must we do? We must say thank you. (laughs) That's the main thing we have to do. You know, the birth of Jesus was surrounded by praise. The angels and the shepherds on the fields and on the hills uh, in the field were worshiping God and giving thanks to God. When Jesus was presented at at the temple, there was thanksgiving and praise to God. Thanksgiving is the right response. We should say thank you, God. We don't look at others who have more or seem to be more qualified. We say, thank you for what you've given me. Thank you for the small things in my life right now. And then we need to say, just like Mary did, Lord, I open my life to your plans, your purposes. What is it that you have for me? And we allow him to come in, to take residence in our lives and for that baby to grow in our lives and become the Lord of our lives so that we achieve what God has for us. Friend, what is it that God has given you today? What are the plans that God has for you for this next year ahead? Give them to God. Say, God, here is everything I have. I want your plans for me. Pray this prayer with me. The first part is for you to give your life to God if you've never done that. And I encourage you to pray that and then pray the rest with me as well. Say, Lord Jesus, I believe you came, you lived, you died on the cross for me so that I could be forgiven of my sins. Thank you, Lord. I give my life to you now. I ask you to forgive me and wash me clean. And Lord, I now choose to give everything I have, my five loaves and two fishes and everything else to you. And I ask you, Lord, to use them and to use me. I give thanks for my circumstances. I don't look with envy at others. I say thank you for where I am and what you've done in my life and where you've put me. And Lord, I choose to give you praise and glory and to be used for your purposes. In Jesus' name. Friend, if you prayed that prayer, let us know, leadinglightsnetwork.com. We would love to walk with you and help you become all that God has planned for you to be. God bless you. Thanks for listening. Please visit leadinglightsnetwork.com and subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts. Please consider supporting this ministry by making a donation on the giving page at leadinglightsnetwork.com or 